I've got one additional announcement that I wanted to let you know of before we jump into the sermon. We are going to take, we, we have, if you're new with us, we've been spending the last number of weeks walking through the book of Revelation. And it has been nothing if not interesting. Uh, I hope that the Lord has drawn you deeper into the understanding of that there's so much more going on than meets our eye right here and now through this series. But here's what we're going to do. On the very last week of the series, we are going to do what at the very beginning of the book it says we're supposed to do. The very beginning of the book says, blessed are all who read this book and hear it. And so that's what we're going to do. So we're going to spend this week and two more with me talking, and then God's going to get to talk. Uh, So that will be the very last Sunday of November is when that's going to happen. So that's going to be an opportunity where we're going to have a couple of songs interspersed um, and a little bit of just kind of like, hey, here's what we're doing and where we're going uh, so if you are new or if, uh, the, if you're inviting somebody that Sunday, give them a heads up. That is very abnormal to what we normally do. Uh, but in the very same way that this letter, as well as the rest of the New Testament letters, were received and read from up front and heard by a congregation and taught by the Holy Spirit's power through that reading, that's what we're going to do. Uh, So we'll have a reminder of that in the next couple of weeks, but just wanted to go ahead and give you a heads up. I believe it's November 26th. That Sunday is when we're going to do that together. Okay? Okay. All right, here we go. Uh, It has been a busy weekend around uh, the Kemp household. It has also been a busy weekend around the Creve Hall staff household. Uh, We've had birthdays all over the place, both... um, both McKendall, my daughter, and Polly Weir, our Kidtown director, had birthdays yesterday. Yeah! So shout real loud so that she can hear you if she's out there. Or maybe she's in here. I'm not sure where she's at at this point. Um, but we have had all kinds of fun this past week with birthday parties. So yesterday, McKendall had a birthday party. We got some pottery. They painted that pottery, played all these little games. There was shaving cream. There were cheese balls. It was a great time. Um, on Tuesday, we also celebrated Polly's birthday with the Creve Hall staff, and it was Halloween also, if you uh, have forgotten way back to the beginning of this week. And all I can say about Polly's party is that it involved all of our staff members at Bar Taco dressed as Sully from Monsters, Inc., a crazy cat lady, and a, a Star Trek crewmate. I'll let you decide which one goes with which staff member. We can play a little matching game later. But what would it be like to throw a birthday party and you get all of the things together, you buy the presents, you get the cake, you get the candles, you set it all out, you got the games, you got the music, and yet the very person that you're throwing the birthday party for doesn't show up. And then, you know, you you light the candles and you sing the song and you're sort of, you know, nervously looking around for the person as you're singing the song, hoping that they'll show up, and they never do. That would be the weirdest birthday party. Or, on the other side, what if McKendall or Polly were to wake up yesterday and nobody mentioned a thing about their birthday? There were no streamers, there were no balloons, there was no party, there was no song, there was no cake. That would be equally a really weird birthday. 
What we're going to talk about for the next two weeks is our understanding and what Revelation, the very end now, we finally made it, what the last two chapters of Revelation have to say about heaven. And there's, there's two equal ditches that we can fall off of when we think about a theology of heaven. Two different fallacies. I'll call one the Shire fallacy and the other the Looney Tunes fallacy. Go with me. Shire fallacy. That is, we're going to live in this sort of quaint little village and we'll farm potatoes and we'll eat second breakfast and it'll be just this, you know, lovely little moment where all community, every tribe, tongue, and nation will come together and we'll all live in peace and harmony. And many of us would say, amen, I want that. That sounds a lot of fun. But what did I not mention at all in that description? The person for whom the whole party is for. But can't we slide off into that belief that, oh, man, and I'm going to see my friends and my family members who have gone before me, maybe my dog, however that works out. There's going to be all kinds of fun. There's going to be good food. There's going to be a feast. And we can totally miss that there is one person for whom the whole party is about. That's one fallacy. On the other side, we can go the Looney Tunes fallacy route, which is the, you know, Wile E. Coyote gets crushed by the Acme anvil and then his little floaty, you know, soul of a body kind of, you know, flies up to heaven and then he grabs a harp and he sort of, you know, oohs and ahs and like sings uh, around God forever. And you might equally think, well, I mean, yeah, that'd be fun for a little while maybe, but I feel like that would start to get boring. Like, where's the realness? Where's all the stuff in this life that I love and enjoy? Where's the party? Two sides of the road that we can fall off of here. Either all, par- all party, no person, or all person, no party. But to have a good party, you need both. You need the person that you're there to celebrate, and you also need all of the great things around that to consummate the glorious moment that you're now entering into. That's what heaven is. Heaven is both person and party. Heaven is both God and new creation, a new heavens and a new earth. But they have to go in that order, and we're going to tend to want to do this. So this morning, all we're going to talk about is that heaven is God. That's what it's all about. That's what our hearts are longing for, and that's where we're headed in Christ. So we're going to read uh, a little, some snippets around Revelation 21 and 22, and Adrian Pedersen is going to come up and do that right at this very moment. Adrian Pedersen, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, adorned for her husband. And I saw no temple in the city, for its temple is the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb. And the city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, and the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the Lamb. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. 
They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and the night will be no more. They will need no lamp of no light of lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. The word of our Lord. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, we need you. We need you to make this true in our hearts. Uh, because we are naturally coming in with all things that are so much more real than you. Uh, faith is walking without sight, believing in something that we can't see, and by definition, that's hard. And so we need your eyes. Uh, we need your illumination in the same way that you said, let there be light in darkness at the beginning of the creation. Would you now in this moment and over these next few minutes say, let there be light inside your people. Would you awaken us to the reality, the great reality of our great God that we just sang about, that we are about to take sacraments about, uh, and that we now sit under your reality. Your word spoken out to our ears. Would we hear you? In Jesus' name, amen. So as I've reflected on my own heart this week, I've seen how much in myself, as I think about what forever will be, I love thinking about the party. But it's a lot harder to think about, I get God, and that's plenty enough. That, that one is real easy to say in sort of a holy manner and everyone around me kind of goes, ooh, ah, yeah. But how many of us really naturally, viscerally apprehend that reality on a daily basis? That's what we are called into out of this passage. This was given to a beleaguered, hurting, frazzled community. And we are a beleaguered, beleaguered hurting, frazzled community today as well. And so he speaks in these words of comfort to me and to us. So two points this morning, and we're going to run to the table. Uh, first, heaven is God. Two, uh, this matters today. So we've spent the last two weeks, if you have been with us the past few, describing that there are these three ultimate enemies of Jesus. Uh, and so we talked about Satan, we talked about beasts, we talked about uh, all of these, these worldly powers that are trying to constantly pull us away from this reality, which is part of the reason why it's so hard to live like God is real and like Revelation 21 and 22 are true. Now we're finally to the point of what happens after that. Like what happens, it says that Jesus is going to conquer all those things. What happens after he does. And so we're finally to this last theme. As we've been walking through these seven themes of the book of Revelation, we're now to our last one, the paradise of Jesus, the paradise that Jesus ushers in in the new heavens and the new earth. And so I'm, I'm going to probably say the word heaven a lot, but as I say that, I want you to have in your mind Revelation 21 verse 1. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So when I say heaven, I'm not describing some ethereal place far away that we will float around in the Looney Tunes version, uh, but I'm, I'm describing that there is a new thing that is being done. God is in the process of making all things, us included, new. And there will be a day when all things will be as perfect and beautiful as they 
were initially made. That's where we're headed. That's what we're going for. So the theme this morning is, as you've seen and picked up on, that there is a presence of the holy that is found throughout these passages. The presence of the holy of whom they will see his face. Revelation 22, verse 4, is the center of what I want you to focus on this morning. They shall see his face. Would we see his face this morning in the same way? So it says a couple verses previous to that, and John is getting this vision of this new heavens and new earth and what everything will be like after Jesus conquers. And the first thing, one of the first things that he says is, and I saw no temple. Like I'm looking around because again, he's in a place and a time where the temple was where God was found. The temple was where the presence of God dwelt. And so it would be confusing for John to then be looking around this new heavens and this new earth, this consummated reality. And, but what he does not see is a temple. And he might be thinking, but that's where you meet with your people. So where did you go? How are you going to meet with your people if not by the temple? Well, let's dial that back because in our experience, we no longer understand what it is to go to a place called the temple and worship. Maybe some of us have grown up or understand this building to be sort of a unique spiritual place where God dwells. But if you look around at the basketball goals and the chain link and all of those things, what I hope that you're being driven to see is that it is not the building that draws the Lord's presence in. It is the people of God where two or three are gathered where his presence dwells. So in that sense, yes, something unique is happening here this morning as we gather. But in another sense, this building nor any other building has anything to do with that presence. So if you go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2, God makes the world, he makes the heavens, and he makes the earth. And now we see there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. A new sky, planets, stars, spiritual world, and all the spiritual beings. Plants, trees, animals, and people. And in the middle of the land that God made, the middle of the earth, he made and named a place called Eden. And in the middle of this place called Eden, he planted a garden. And in the middle of that garden, he planted mankind. And there was this thin space, if you've heard that term before, where there may be times in your life or places where you go where you feel as if God is nearer. This thin space where God feels closer to you than in other places or times or scenarios. And there was this thin space there in Eden where God uniquely dwelt with his people. But when mankind is first awakened, God creates mankind, forms him out of the dust, blows into his nostrils, and his eyes open. And what is the first thing that man sees? He sees God. And now we are, here we are at the very other end of the story, the conclusion of all things, and what is mankind seeing? God. He is the point of the whole story. He is the desire of, above and beyond all other desires. But mankind does not heed the warning that God gives in order to maintain uh, their righteousness before him. They walk away from him instead of walking towards him, uh, wanting his stuff and not so much wanting 
him. We love his stuff. I've been saying this for the past few weeks because there, there are enormous ways uh, that this plays out in our lives. We love all the things he made, and there's a reason why we love those things, because he's amazing. But those can very easily be substitutes for the one who created them. So mankind walks away from God. God's presence is withdrawn from man. There is a cherubim. That's Hold on to that image. That's going to come back later. There's a cherubim who now keeps the presence of God away from the presence of man. And now, that's just Genesis 3. We've got a whole lot more Bible to go, but we're not going to go too deep into it. The rest of the story of Scripture is a story of God moving towards man and man moving away from God. And so God, almost from this point, initiates his rescue plan starts already, even as he is saying, there is now something between you and I because I cannot dwell with evil and that is now what you are. But almost in that same moment, he is also, not almost, in that same moment, he is saying, but I am making a way to be with you. And so first it's through guys like Noah, Abraham, Joseph. Then he goes after an entire nation of Israel. He rescues them out of slavery in Egypt. And in that moment, as they wander through the wilderness, the first time that something kind of like this temple happens. And he says, God comes to Moses and he says, I'm going to give you a whole lot of detailed plans. And if you've ever read through the book of Leviticus and started to glaze over, this is what all of that is about. All of these detailed plans about this thing called a tabernacle, this place where God would again, in a very small way, in a very unique, limited way, would meet again with his people. And so he said, I want you to make all of these, I want you to make a tent, and then outside of that tent, I want you to make a fence, and inside of that tent, I want you to put this thing called an Ark of the Covenant, which is a golden box. And you can't touch the golden box or you die. That happened once, that wasn't good. Uh, And what's going to be on top of the box? Cherubim, signifying there is still something between you and I, but I am making a way. I am coming towards you. And there were sacrifices that were established, that were made to be, the, to be an image of the thing. There is something wrong between you and I, but these sacrifices are imaging. There is a way that I am going to make this right through the spilling of blood. We can be reconciled. More on that in a minute. God was present, but God was limited in his presence. And so everywhere the people in the wilderness walked, They picked up that tabernacle and they took it with them. There is something of an image in here for the way the Holy Spirit now dwells in us, but in such a more expansive way than in a box. Later on, we see Solomon builds a temple, same kind of thing, same imagery, cherubim, temple, holy of holies, God's presence, only there, not anywhere else, just there. people had very limited opportunity to meet with God face to face. And so when Kurt Thompson, whose book I mentioned a couple of weeks ago called The Soul of Shame, when he says we are born into a world looking for someone looking for us, where do you think that came from? Where do you think that desire to be seen and known 
to be seen for all that you are, all that you bring, both the good and the bad and the ugly, and yet still to be seen to your core. Where did that desire come from? You were made for it. The first thing your ancestors saw was God. And so ever since we have been cast out of his presence, we have been longing to be back in. We're made to do life with him. We're made to be protected and guided and loved by him. Why is it that it only takes four weeks in the human lifespan for the first signs of attachment to form. And what is that, that sign of attachment? It is a response from an infant to the smile of their parent or someone else who is smiling over their crib. And it may be a smirk, and then maybe two to four to six weeks later, it turns into a smile back from them and a tickle that turns into a laugh that turns into a relationship between father and son or mother and daughter that then grows and grows and grows. All of these things, we're made for it. It's built into who we are and how we are made to attach to one another. And as we grow, we can tell when our parents are angry. We can tell when our friends don't think our joke is funny or our congregants. <laughs> we can tell when a, a girl or a boy is interested in us or not. We are constantly scanning for faces. Who will be there for me? Who will love me? Who will secure me? Who will say, well done? Who will smile over my life? Who will be able to see even the worst parts of me and not turn away? That is the longing inside of our hearts. And so today we look to lovers, to bosses, to friends, to parents, for the love and the acceptance and the approval and the courage. And yet as we look to those things, and I love to look to those things. But as we look to other people to communicate what only God can securely communicate to us, I love you, I'm for you, keep going, I see you. Now, in the image of God, we can do that for each other in healthy, appropriate ways. But no person or community will be able to communicate what only your father can. Only he has a smile that will fill up every recess of your heart. Because God tells Moses all the way back in Exodus 33, you can't see my face, actually. You're going to have to be shoved inside this rock. And I'm going to pass by, but you can't see my face. Because if you see my face, you will die. Heaven is seeing God's face. How do we take that reality and begin to bring it into and appropriate it into our daily experience? Let me tell you a story. Uh, I mentioned the story maybe three months ago or so, and it was when uh, it was the sermon on Jesus' eyes, when it says his eyes are like a flame of fire. So keep that image in your mind as I tell you this. This is a story of a man named Sadhu. 
He was an Indian man who, as a boy, had had missionaries come to his village. He hated them. He hated the gospel message. He hated the the gospel tracts they would give out. He hated their Bibles. He hated their smiles. He hated everything about them. And when they passed by, he would throw mud at them. And he would throw their their tracts and their Bibles in the trash. In fact, he got so mad and zealous that he took one of their Bibles and he burned it. But immediately... After burning that Bible, he felt this massive amount of conviction, and he had no idea where it was coming from. He had this massive longing inside of himself where he felt so unhappy, where he longed to know, is God real? And there was only one way that he determined that he could figure out, is God real? Well, I'm going to have to die so I can figure it out. And so he had made plans to commit suicide. He uh, planned to throw himself in front of a train which passed by his house. Uh, And this is a quote from him. Then suddenly something unusual happened. The room was filled with a beautiful glow and I saw a man. I thought it might be Buddha or some other holy man. Then I heard a voice, how long will you deny me? I died for you. I have given my life for you. Then I saw his hands, the pierced hands of Jesus Christ. This was the Christ I had imagined as a great man who once lived in Palestine, but who had since died and disappeared. And yet, now stood before me alive. I saw his face looking at me with love. Three days before, I had burned a Bible, and yet he was not angry. I was suddenly changed. I saw him as Christ, the living one, the savior of the world. I fell on my knees and knew a wonderful peace, which I had never found anywhere before. That was my happiness I had been seeking for such a long time. A boy who was in the crowd hearing this story asked the narrator of this story, please, sir, how did Jesus look? And he put his hands before his eyes and he said, oh, his eyes. His eyes are so beautiful. And the narrator of the story says, since then I've longed to see Jesus' eyes. We can see Jesus' eyes today. As we experience the person and the work of Jesus in the pages of scripture, we see how he interacted with those around him. Uh, We see all of the ways in which he loved the unlovable, which he cared for the uncareable, which he, he worked for justice for those who were being treated poorly. We see the face of God, the glory of God in the face of Jesus. And so all the bowls and the lampstands and the purple fabric and the curtains and the holy of holies and the sacrifices and the palm trees and the cherubim, all of those things were pointing to this reality. This reality meaning this person. They're all pointing to Jesus. They're all pointing to his person and to his work. Pointing to this reality that we naturally are disconnected from God that we do need someone or something outside of us to reconnect us in this way. And then in comes John 1 like a cannonball and says, the word, that is Jesus, became flesh and dwelt. Same word, tabernacled among us. Pointing back all of those years, all of those thousands of years, pointing to Everything that God had done was imaging one reality. And that reality was the life and the death and the resurrection 
of our Lord Jesus. And the sacrifices of the bulls and the goats and the blood that was painted on the altar for anyone to enter God's presence now once and for all are finished. There is no more need for the shedding of blood because Jesus' blood has been shed. On the cross, Jesus experienced the face of God turning away so that we in him can experience the full face of God looking us dead in the eyes, knowing and seeing us to our very core, all the good, all the bad, all the ugly, and yet still, because the righteousness of Christ is covering us like a robe, if we've trusted in him this morning, he smiles on you because of the work of Jesus. So two ways that this can apply to us today. If God ultimately is the goal of all creation and therefore is the goal of the new heavens and the new earth, two ways that we can bring that truth and reality into our everyday. First, we're already there. There's some crazy passages in the New Testament, in the the letters of Paul, that describe some of the realities of what we are right now and where we are right now. Ephesians, both 1 and 2, say things like that we are already raised and seated in heavenly places with Jesus. This reality in Revelation 22 is already happening now. That's weird because it doesn't feel like that. But here's how we get more of that experience, appropriating that reality and bringing it into the present. Paul goes on to say that the Holy Spirit is the down payment. The Holy Spirit is the foretaste. It's like the movie trailer of the great movie that's to come. But we can watch that trailer over and over and over right now. We get God's face right now through the presence and the cultivation of a relationship with the Holy Spirit. So if you could ask God anything, why this diagnosis? What job should I take? What spouse should I choose? Are you proud of me? All of those questions can be asked and responded to both by his word and through prayer and through all the little sovereign moments of your life that the Holy Spirit is weaving a beautiful tapestry, drawing you more and more into the likeness of Jesus. And so are you cultivating a reality of a walk, like Paul says, that we would walk in the Spirit? Meaning it's possible not to. It's possible to walk in our flesh. It's possible to just kind of do life as we think and walk and act as we do life. It is also possible, though, to cultivate a consistent presence of God every morning. So uh, Robert Murray McShane has this quote that continues to haunt me uh, and at the same time be something that I long to see more and more true in my life. He says, my first business every morning is to make myself happy in Jesus. Would that be our first business every morning? is to make our souls happy in Jesus. That image of his name will be written on our foreheads, that's what that's saying. Would he be the first thought of my mind every morning? Secondly, we're already there, and yet we also know all the ways that we're not. 
we see the brokenness in ourselves. We see the brokenness in this world. We see the brokenness in our families. We see the brokenness in our neighborhood. And Andrew Peterson, who's a songwriter um, in our town, wrote a song a number of years years ago called After the Last Tear Falls. And he says, after the last tear falls, after the last secret's told, after the last bullet tears through flesh and bone, after the last child starves and the last girl walks the boulevard, after the last year that's just too hard, there is love. After the last disgrace, after the last lie to save some face, after the last brutal jab from a poisoned tongue, after the last dirty politician, after the last meal, Down at the mission, after the last lonely night in prison, there is love. After the last plan fails and the last siren wails and the last young husband sails off to join the war, after the last this marriage is over, and the last young girl's innocence is stolen, after the last years of silence that won't let a heart open, there is love. And in the end, there is ocean and oceans of love and love again. We'll see see how the tears that have fallen were caught in the palms of the giver of love and the lover of all. And we'll look back on these tears as old tales. Because after the last year falls, there's love. Endurance to continue to walk the narrow road of faith is hard. And we can continue to walk that through the Spirit's power, encouraging and enjoying the face of God now in part and looking by faith to the day where we will see him face to face. And that's what this is. That's what we're about to do as we come to the table because we consistently need the reminder and the hope and the security that what we're doing is not for nothing that this faith that we have can actually be rooted in something real and isn't just sort of a pie in the sky, you know, sort of rose-colored glasses hope that everything, you know, will probably work out okay. No, no, there is something so much more secure that we can root our faith in, that we can root our security knowing for sure what God thinks about us and the look on his face as he thinks about you this morning. This table secures God's presence for those who are in Christ. And so for all this morning who are hungry and longing and looking to every other face, can you satisfy me? Can you satisfy me? Can you satisfy me? Look to Jesus. Would you come to him this morning? And part of the reason why we kneel is our bodies communicate to our minds. And so we're coming and kneeling and saying, I don't know if I totally believe this, but I'm going to, with my body, posture myself to say, help. I'm so numb. I'm so lonely. I'm so full of longing. And I don't even know or totally believe that you can satisfy help. That's the cry of the Christian. That's the cry of faith. And so for all who have come to a place in their lives this morning who that faith is something that you have come to not a realization that I can do this life on my own, but I am so insignificant and unsatisfactory before the Lord. And Jesus has had to bridge the gap between me and him. If that's your position this morning, then this table is for you.
And so for all who are hungry, who are walking in community by faith with other believers, would you run forward to this table, posture yourself in humility, and drink deeply of his love that is true both for you now and for your forever. Because on the night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he broke it and he said, this is my body broken for you. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup and he said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. As often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And here's what I know. Using myself as uh, the first illustration, I know that many of us in a full room like this are struggling in all kinds of ways. Welcome. Use this time. Let this not pass over you as just another ritual that we do as for our churchiness to feel better. Use this time to meet with the face of God. Use this time, if you need prayer up here, cross your arms and someone will speak words of kindness and encouragement and love over you. If you need a space where you want to pray with somebody else or have someone in a more lengthy span of time to pray, go back to the prayer corner and see Mitch or just grab somebody next to you and say, will you pray for me? Let's be on the lookout for each other. Those of you who know somebody who's going through something right now, go find them in this moment. Grab them and pray for them. In this way, we are being the face of God for each other. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, would you make, uh, would you make things that feel very ethereal and far away very real to our senses right now? Thank you that you know that we're forgetful. Uh, and so you give us this taste of bread and cup. Uh, and as real as those tastes are, so as real is your grace and your love and your work through your son. And so make that real to our hearts uh, that you would encourage us to fall into you, into your presence, uh, that we might have enough courage to take another step as we walk out of these doors. We pray in your name. One final announcement uh, that I wanted to make as we approach Advent. Uh, we're about a month out, and you may remember about uh, two months ago, we had Jonathan and Susie Nash. Susie's actually back with us this morning. Welcome, Susie. Um, we had Jonathan and Susie come up. We prayed over them and sent them out to start this new work uh, of church planting and worshiping in the Napier community, downtown Nashville. Um, and it's now been six weeks that they have been a worshiping community. That, that's not meaning that there's only been six weeks of work. There's been like seven years. Seven years of work to even get to this point. But one, just one more time to celebrate the work that the Lord is doing in the Napier community through the Nash family, in the Nash family, and in uh, the broader community that is being brought in and hearing the gospel there. And some of the work that they've been doing is by way of affordable produce, counseling services, youth entrepreneurship classes, men's and women's ministry, and lots of eating. There's a reason that this is called Napier Kitchen Table. And in an area where less than 5% of the community attends church and 97% live in poverty. Did you hear that? 
97% live in poverty. That's 92% who are food insecure. That's 93% who are experiencing childhood poverty. That's 40% who own a vehicle and 68% who are single parent households. And the gospel is going out in this community. Thank you, Jesus. Here's what uh, is also happening as of now. As all of this good work that you're now seeing behind me is going on, uh, because worship services have opened up, because more people are being drawn to this, there's a greater financial need than ever before, especially for a community like this. So every year, what we will typically do is have stockings. If you've been around for the past few years, there have been stockings out in the, uh, in the hallway that you can grab and take with you. We are still going to do the stockings this year, and those are going to be coming out November 26th uh, and then to be returned by December 10th. More info on that. But one additional thing that we are going to ask from, this, is, this ask is happening at every congregation across the Midtown movement this morning because this is not another church. This is us. These are us. Uh, this is our people. And we are coming alongside our fellow brothers and sisters, the body of Christ, to care for them as we have now been cared for by Jesus in the table. So what we're asking for is additional financial support over and above uh, your normal tithes and off offerings. There's a greater financial need, uh, as you can imagine, to keep all of these kinds of things, all this good ministry going on on a weekly basis. Uh, and Lord willing, this is only one of many congregations that will be founded in indigenous neighborhoods, uh, multicultural scenarios, multilingual scenarios all across this city. They are doing amazing work. So the ask is if everyone across our movement who called Midtown Home would give $25 a month towards the Napier congregation, we would be able to completely fill the coffers for the next year for them to continue to do the ministry that they're doing. I would ask you to just consider, what might the Lord be asking me to do to care not for them, but for us? Uh, how can we come alongside and encourage the good work that is being done there? Um, and that can be a monthly thing. That can be a one-time thing at the end of the year. However that works best for you, uh, I would just ask you this morning as a congregation, uh, would we consider how to love this community that the gospel is going out in powerful ways? I think that's it. Have, uh, no, not have a stand. That's a weird way to say that. Uh, hey, how about you stand up? <laughs> um, okay, I want to read something. This is number seven, that whole tabernacle thing I mentioned before. This is the blessing as the tabernacle is being built, as the presence of God is beginning to dwell again with man, and as the presence of God dwells among us here today, here is what your father wants you to hear. This is the ironic blessing from number six. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to Aaron and his son saying, thus shall bless the people of Israel. You shall say to them, the Lord bless you and keep you. Extend your hands and receive this blessing. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his face upon you and give you peace. So shall they put my name upon the people of Israel, and I will bless them. Let's sing. Praise God from whom all blessings.